two beautiful cars that I still think are the top two cars in the world that I remember as a little girl. We are talking about cars which I think the last one sold for over £50 million. I can feel the hairs on the back of my neck when you do realise that it's the real deal. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd, model, mum, landlady and racing driver. So we all know classic cars aren't just for driving. They mean such a great deal more. They've got their heritage, the prestige, the character, the looks, the sounds. Oh, those sounds, the smells. And of course, they're just so super cool. In this series, I'm joined by an expert in classics, my co-host James Elliott from Octane magazine. We'll talk to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this impassioned and intricate world. So who are these people? Well, they're the owners, the restorers, or just simply the fans and followers. Every episode will be joined by a special guest to talk about their particular expertise within the classic car world. And we'll ask them to select an object that means something to them. It could be anything from an old photo to a bonnet badge. That's our one piece at a time part coming up. Now, we do live in very extraordinary times and we would have loved to have recorded this podcast face-to-face in a lovely studio. Instead, I'm uh, self-isolating at home, but at least the sun is shining. However, through the wonders of technology, we've managed to hook up with James, who's also in a secret location. So, James, are you there? Yes, I am here. Good morning. Good morning. So, where are you and how are you? I'm very well, thank you. No sign of any nastiness in my household. Now I'm in a secret location called the end of the dining table. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Where is this dining table located? Uh, In southwest London, where five of us are currently holed up in our house, Mm. looking out enviously at the weather and wishing, well, I wish I was out there in an old car having a blast, but obviously that's not allowed at the moment. Okay, so James... Before we introduce our guest, I want to know a little bit about you and our listeners would like to know about how you got into kind of classic cars and especially Octane magazine. Well, I've only been at Octane magazine since 2017, actually. The magazine itself was founded in 2003, although I've been working on classic car magazines for, well, nearly 25 years now. Before that, I started my career, funnily enough, as a crime reporter. So it was a natural leap into the world of classic cars. (laughs) I just found that newspaper reporting wasn't really for me. And I'd been a lifelong classic car fan. My first car was a 1973 Mini. And then I had a series of Triumphs and Dolomites and Heralds and things like that. When I found out I could combine that hobby Mm. with being paid... It was an absolute no-brainer for me, and I leapt at it, and I've been very, very fortunate to be doing it and living the dream ever since. And do you have a classic? I've got a couple at the moment. A Triumph 2000, which uh, used to be a car you did a bit of competition in. It's got a hot engine and stuff, and I actually use that for the school run. Well, I used to when there was a school oh, run. lovely. I've also got a Jensen Interceptor, which is oh. undergoing... Well, it's undergoing a bit of bodywork at the moment, which it has been for quite a long time now. I think... You know, apart from the sort of the refueling jokes, you can probably say yeah, every yeah. Jensen Interceptor is always undergoing a bit of bodywork. I was lucky enough to drive one once. And just that engine 
It is a fabulous car. I mean, when I bought mine, uh, people will wince now, but the whole point of owning a classic car is you can, for a long time, is you can tell people how cheaply you bought it. And I bought my Interceptor for £3,500 about oh, wow. 13 years ago. I know I can almost tell you to the day when I bought it because... My firstborn had just been born, told my wife, as a result, I would have to go and buy a practical family hatchback. And I came back with a Jensen. <laughs> yeah, joking. That's came brilliant. back with a Jensen. Oh, I've had so much mileage out of this anecdote over the years. I tell you, 13 years and it's still going strong. That is absolutely brilliant. It's got literally the biggest back window. It's extraordinary. I mean, I would hate to have to replace that. They're out there and there's a superb Jensen Owners Club and a support structure for the owners, but it's not cheap. The problem with Jensen's has always been that it takes a really dedicated owner because the cars are from the cheaper end of the classic scale, but the repairs and the costs and the parts are from the more expensive end of the classic car scale because these were hand-built cars in period. They are a fabulous thing, but they do test your patience and really hammer your bank balance. Unfortunately, I think all of the very special classic cars kind of do that. That's enough about me, Jodie. Where does your obsession with classic cars come from? Oh, well, my grandmother. Um, and this is a story that also my father and now I'm like dining out on. But my grandmother got one of the very early E-types and it was the same time as the M1. So it was our first motorway ever opened. And so there's this great story of her going, right, this is it. I'm going to take the new car and take it up the new motorway. Off she kind of trotted and got up to the M1 and apparently went over 100 miles an hour. And when you could go, oh, I mean, it didn't have a speed limit at that time. So she was completely in love with the E-Type. And so I've got these beautiful pictures of her, you know, this wonderful, amazing woman driving this gorgeous car. And then another moment where I just fell in love with the beauty of a car. I mean, it wouldn't have been that classic at the time, but it certainly is now. And that was my godfather had a Ferrari 250 GTO which the Bamfords now own. And so he was this amazing character called George Drummond. And I think he sold it for absolutely nothing. And so every time we can't talk to him about how much they're worth nowadays. Um, but this was a specifically a special one because it had the Le Mans body. It was a very beautiful car, as I remember as a little girl, seeing this beautiful red car and I used to go and sit in it. I mean, I had no idea of the magnitude of the car that I was sitting in, you know, for nowadays. And so that was where I just kind of fell in love with that shape and obviously Ferraris from that moment. So I'd have to blame my parents for obviously getting me very good godfathers that had seriously good taste in cars and uh, my grandmother. So very much a family love of cars. But yes, yeah, so two moments and two beautiful cars. That I have to say that I still think are the top two cars in the world that I remember as a little girl. Well, I was just going to say, maybe may vulgar, I know, to talk about money, but if I could just put into perspective for the listeners quite how rare a 250 GTO is. We are talking about cars, which I think the last one sold for over 50 million pounds. Um, it did. But these are cars which, depending on who you listen to, only 37 or perhaps 39 properly were made. And these are, for many people, the absolute pinnacle of post-war classic cars. This is the thing to own and collect. And um, you're very, very fortunate to have had one in the family, I think. Unbelievable. And now, every time I see one, I just go, oh, look at it. It literally stops everyone in its tracks. 
it is so beautiful. It's got a, a very special place in my heart. And, oh, gosh, I wish he had kept it. But anyway, there <laughs> we go. <laughs> uh, we have to move on from that one when we're talking to George. Um, OK, so, right, enough about us two. Um, James, who is our special guest? Well, seeing as the classic car world is all about recycling actually it's quite environmentally friendly in that sense we're going to start off by focusing on the role of the restorer although i'm sure he'll tell us that he does a lot more than that and also somebody who's very well renowned within the industry for his specialism in lancia but i'm sure again he'll tell us that he does a bit more than that as well so we're joined on the line by simon thornley who with wayne kellum was co-founder of one of the world's foremost classic car restorations businesses no surprise that it's called thornley Kellum. So, hello, Simon. Where are you holed up? Uh, morning, everybody. Well, I'm holed up in the beautiful Cotswolds, having had to, of course, close down our business the day before yesterday. So I'm sitting here looking out onto a beautiful garden scene. Simon, tell me, where did it all start for you? Can you remember the first time, like, when I laid eyes on, on my grandmother's E-type? Was there a moment like that for you? So two things happened to me in, I think it was 1965. I'm a northerner, I'm from Scunthorpe. Both my parents were from Wigan. Twice right. a year we used to make the pilgrimage to Wigan, which was hilarious. It was 100 miles door to door, which I thought was magical, by the way. You'd think we were going to Everest, honestly. Anyway, my uncle, who had started off as a door to door brush salesman, and I used to occasionally go out with him, became a partner in a small garage on the edge of Warrington. And they started selling cars. And he turned up outside my nan's house this evening. It was dark. And I can still hear him say, Simon, Simon, come on, come on, I'm taking you for a drive, I'm taking you for a drive. And we went outside and there was a pale blue metallic E-type coupe there. Oh, you had the same. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And of course, you know, I'm a boy from Scunthorpe whose dad trained as an engineer, but we, he's a teacher. We didn't have uh, money, etc. Uh, so he drove me around the dark streets of Wigan in an E-type Jaguar. I think I was nine or amazing. ten. Wow. The following summer, because I was such a good boy at school, I won a prize, which was a book. And I bought the Observer Book of Automobiles. I've got those. They're fantastic. Yeah. I've still got that one with the little sticker in the front saying I won the attainment prize. So that was kind of the start. And I, from there, and my dad was into cars uh, and just used to keep the family cars on the road. And I suppose it all started there, really. So I've been into cars ever since. The next staging post would be when I was 19. And so I'd gone off to uni uh, in Leeds, uh, no, 20, and decided I needed a car and was going off to live in France, actually, and, and teach English in France uh, as part of my degree. And so we bought a 1965 VW Beetle. When I say we, I had mm. to save up for half of it. It was £175. It was then that I realised it did not inherit my dad's gene for working on cars, because he'd leave me out trying to fix things on the front drive till it was nearly dark. I'd be virtually in tears, which is not good for a 20-year-old. And then he'd come <laughs> along and pick up a spanner and fix it. And then I took that car to France and drove around in that. So that was the next stage. You the must third be stage, very cool. Driving to Leeds University in and back in a pale eggshell blue VW Beetle, which, of course, now is a classic. Back then it was just an old car. Absolutely. So, yeah, that was that. And then I suppose the next stage, which we'll probably revert to shortly, is my three great loves in life, I suppose, have been words, i.e. reading, cars and photography. And I worked in the photography industry for quite a long time. And that involved me going to do work in the States. As a photographer? No, no, I worked in the photo library business. So I went to work in Chicago and suddenly realised I could afford my first classic car. So I bought a clapped out Austin Healey 3000, which I drove everywhere. 
But I realised that the car I really loved was a Healy 100 because I thought it was much more beautiful. And I found yeah. a really clapped out one outside Chicago for 1200 bucks that needed a full restoration and found these guys who worked in the middle of Illinois. They restored the car and it became a pilgrimage. And every Saturday morning, I'd drive out there in the 3000 and help them or get in the way. That turned me on to the restoration of cars. I just loved the process of restoring it. And right. I still own that car today. What I like about that anecdote, Simon, is it's a lovely story, but the enthusiast in you overtook the businessman there in that you told us what it cost you to buy the rotten car, but not what it cost you to restore it. it every red cent, uh, red or blue or green cent that I... I'll tell you, actually, it cost me in 1990 to 91, $40,000. <gasps> my goodness. Uh, which was... was everything I was earning that we didn't need to eat and drink. Victoria, my wife, still to this day, uh, was fantastic about it. She's your and wife still, probably... despite that. <laughs> <laughs> she seemed, uh, believe me, she's seemed worse since then. Uh, but yes, and I, I think probably now it doesn't owe me any money. You could argue it never did because I loved it from day one. Is that Amazing. the only classic you have in your personal fleet as such at the moment? Or what else have you got? Uh, um, there have been quite a few additions along the way. Uh, I've probably got a dozen or so. Oh, lovely. And your favourite? Can you let us know your favourite? Um, I don't think I've got a favourite, but I can tell you that the one probably I couldn't sell, or it would be the last one to go if I had to sell. So I've got a, I've had for 20 years, the first 500 2.7 RS Porsche. Oh, lovely. Uh, oh, gorgeous. There's an all-round driver's car, everything about it. It's just fantastic. I couldn't afford it now, but, you know, 20-odd years ago I could. I think that's the one I would keep if all else had to go. But I have, you know, a B20 Aurelia, which is just an amazing Ooh. car to drive. I've managed to stay on sort of the magazine part of the, this whole world is, is right at the heart of the industry, yet not really in the same way as you are. We're sort of peripheral. How on earth did you turn that enthusiasm Ooh. into a business? Oh, combination of luck, madness and the fact that we're all, it's basically a bug, isn't it, this old car thing? I met Wayne through an Aston Martin actually, that I bought uh, in a fit of madness and took it to where he was working and said, can you do some work on it? And it turned into a combination of financial madness and deep frustration. But Wayne was fantastic. And so he was kind of working in the evenings a bit on my other cars. And we became friends. To cut a long story short, a few years later, after I'd sold the Aston at a, at a great loss uh, and amongst deep mm. frustration, he rang me up and said, I found an Aston Martin DB4. I can't repeat the words I used at the time, but he persuaded me to go and look at it. <laughs> and um, it was a true barn find. It had been stuck in a barn in this guy's garage since 1974. I bought it because it was embarrassingly cheap. And uh, we set about thinking how we'll restore it. And we found Richard Williams for doing the engine. We found the body lines to do the body. And then we thought, well, Wayne was fed up where he was working, become very disillusioned. So we thought, well, we could just set up a little paint shop. And this is the summer of 2008. So you know where this is going. By October 2008, which you really will remember, we decided to do it and found premises and all that kind of stuff. And there were four of us. We opened in January 2009. We thought we'd just be a body and paint shop because Wayne, the majority of his career in classic cars, which by then was 20 mm -hmm. years, he'd been a painter, painting at Pebble Beach level. He was a problem solver. He knew his way around cars. I thought, well, I'll set this up with you and I'll fund it and I'll learn about accounting and I'll be the business end. And I thought, you know, six months and I'll go down to a couple of days a week. And that was, of course, 11 years ago. It wasn't Thornley Kellum when you started, was it? 
I came up with this name and we designed a logo, which was the Vintage and Classic Paint Shop, and this vaguely Art Deco logo. I think I copied a light I saw in a hotel. So we started just doing body and paint, and then people would say, well, if you're doing that, could you just do this? And, well, can't you rebuild the engine? And can't you rewire it? So it just grew, really. Then the uncle who started as the um, the E-type uncle, he ended up building up the biggest VW Audi garage in the UK at the time. And so we ended up having two successive orange Audi 100s. And then he went into Lancers. When I came back from the States in 92, I was told I could have a company car. And everyone else had three series BMWs. And I said, can I have an Integrale? Oh my and nobody goodness. knew what an Integrale was. Nobody Stop knew what an Integrale it. was. And they said, as long as you don't spend £23,000, you can have whatever you want. So I managed to buy a bright red Integrale oh. Evo in 1992 as my company One car. One of my favourites. Which I kept for five years. And then I drove an Aurelia. And I just couldn't believe it. The B20 GT, it was a third series car. And I just thought, blimey. And then I looked around and realised that although they weren't worth a huge amount, they were just the most phenomenal car. Innovative, a car for engineers, if you like. Lancia was an engineering-led mm. business. We kind of got into doing Lanchas. And that led us to do probably the, my favourite restoration, which was arguably the most famous B20 GT of all, which was Giovanni Bracco's first series B20 chassis 1010, which came second overall in the, in the Millimilia. Six weeks later, he won his class at Le Mans, came ninth overall, won a series of races over the summer, had the car lowered for aerodynamic reasons, took it on the Carrera Panamericana and crashed out on the fourth day. And the car disappeared and was this legendary car. And then a client of ours found it through a colleague in the industry in the States. I'm not cutting a long story short, but it, anyway, it came to us to restore. And that became an incredible journey because the car was messed about with. It was incomplete here and there, but it had its original engine, all its original componentry. Did you know about the history before the car kind of turned up on your forecourt? Uh, well, we, I had to go and uh, view it with a dear industry colleague, Mark Donaldson, who's just great. And we had to go down and see it in a bonded warehouse in South End. So I'd read up about it beforehand. I didn't know about the car before. I love the research side of, and the history of cars, by the way. I think it's a big part of my love for the whole scene. So I did some research and went down there with Mark and we were looking over it and found telltale things. Because I, I went on the train thinking it won't be, it won't be, it can't be. There's no way it's that car, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, in fact, I can feel the, the hairs on the back of my neck just remembering that mm. moment when you do realise that it's the real deal and you start to do more research. And then there was one particular moment because it was all about, well, why was this car lowered? The roof had been lowered about just under four inches. And I found this article in an Italian car magazine dated something like August 1951. And it was a report on the car being the uh, six-hour Pescara race, which it won. And it says in the text, in Italian, that the newly aerodynamically changed car with its lowered roof. That was a light bulb moment. I remember jumping up and down with glee yeah. because uh, it proved that Lancia themselves, through Bracco, because he owned a car, had been experimenting that early with what you could do with these cars. Because, you know, two-litre engine pushing out less than 90 horsepower in its standard form. So is this car the inspiration for the Outlaw? Yes. Anyone who's been to a Concorde probably in the last couple of years in the UK will have seen Thornley Kellum do this modified Aurelia B20 Coupe that is is lowered and has got a lower roof line. And I, I think certainly when I first saw it, I didn't understand the inspiration. I thought it was just a sort of a slightly outlaw chop job. But so there is a, a historical 
premise behind that. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So we took the car to Pebble Beach, which was a weird experience. I think 2014 or 15, I can't remember. And about six weeks later, a very high-profile, wealthy collector who was already a client of ours, who owned a standard B20 GT, and by the way, Jody owns a 250 GTO, mm. um, visited us. And he said, look, would you guys fancy making an outlaw Aurelia? It didn't take me long to think about this. And I just said, yeah, great. He said, well, you wouldn't be upset. You know, what about the purists? And that's a whole separate conversation. But at the time, I thought, well, no, we do a huge amount of authentic restoration work. And why shouldn't we be able to do a modified car? And so he basically gave us carte blanche, uh, other than financially, to create an outlaw Aurelia. We set about doing that in the usual way, the British way, which is on brown paper and string. We just came up with this great shape. It's lowered, as you say. We also widened the wings, changed everything on the car, and it's developed. So we said we'd build up to nine of them, and we're on number, we're building numbers five and six at the minute. And they've developed such that we now, the other big moment for us was we thought, given that these cars were putting out 118 horsepower in series four mm. and five, wasn't very much. So we took that engine out and we put a Flaminia, which is the later generation of V6, uh, Lancia V6 from the early 60s. We bore it out to 2.8 and we also fuel inject it. So we now got a car that does about 210 horsepower. So how many hours does it take to take a, a do you, and do you take a, a rotten B20 shell or do yes. you start with a, you know, so you take a rotten one, how many hours does it take to build the Outlaw? Well, I would say that if you took the metalwork out, it's about 3,000, but if you put the metalwork in, it can go up to between four and a half and four, eight. Hours. Hours. Man hours. Well, we're talking about the Outlaw. You did mention earlier that there was a separate conversation about the purists' reaction to it. Now, I've known you for a good few years now, and I don't think you or your company is something that's likely to sort of take lightly doing a job like this and maybe reducing the stock of B20s out there. But first of all, sort of how many are there? And, and secondly, what has the reaction been from purists and, and from the wider classic car community? Okay, so I guess I've developed a philosophy over time on this, but my original thought was, well, there are a lot of rotten B20s out there because, in fact, that's one of the ways that we grew the business, finding rotten cars and then finding customers who wanted us to restore them. So Lancia made just over 3,800 B20 GT coupes over the life of the car from 51 to 57, early 58. How many are left? I don't know. Attrition rate quite high because the problem is that the steel they used was not of highest grade, which is a whole separate story, post-war story. Say there are 2,000 left. I feel we can't use a really good car. So we've done incredibly rotten ones, which were virtually boxes of bits. And we've done a couple where the body wasn't that bad, but it didn't have its engine or whatever. So we're not starting with a good car. Second point is that wrongly in my view, but fashion is a strange thing, as I'm sure Jody would agree. Mm -hmm. And fashioning cars is a strange thing. Lanchers these days are not high profile cars because the brand is dying on its feet. It's virtually dead. But in right. period, I would venture to say post-war, Lanchers were the best engineered cars in Italy. I think Enzo Ferrari, I think I'm right in saying, said something along the lines of, you know, you, when you come to Ferrari, you, you're buying the engine and we give you the rest of the car. Lanchers are beautifully engineered, wonderful driver's cars, but the emphasis was never on speed and power. It was about balance and handling. So they've got the world's first V6 production engine in them, but it doesn't look very sexy and they don't go very fast. So Lanchers in general are not high profile cars, which means their values are low, which in turn means that very few people are going to spend the requisite money to take a rotten Aurelia 
and put it back to original specification. It's when you say values are low, where are we looking at the moment? Although it's harder to find them now, the top B20 GT is without any history, but a beautifully restored two and a half litre version is not going to cost you um, more than a quarter of a million pounds. But to restore any car properly, whether it's a DB4 Aston, which you've just finished one, is roughly the same if the car is in bad shape. And it's going to cost you that much. And you've just started a three-year restoration, I have to say, on one of my favourite cars, uh, which is the Alfa Romeo 6C1750 Super Sport, which I was very yeah. lucky to race in a few Mila Milias oh, um, cool. with. Um, yeah. But this one um, had a very unusual or very interesting owner. Can you tell us about this build and specifically about this car? Well, I sense that this may become a pilgrimage as well. So to try and summarize, so we have one wonderful client, an English guy, who came to us with a pile of bits of a pre-war Lancia and Augusta March special. So um, actually commissioned by Freddie March in the 30s. And we got to know him and he asked us about the business. And then he said, look, find me other cars. Uh, but he said, they've got to be cars that need rescuing. And I occasionally would send him information about cars, including I sent him one about uh, Bugatti. Fantastic thing. And he just said, no, it's not bad enough. It's just not bad enough. In other words, the condition wasn't poor enough. So I put the word out and we were told about this 60 Alpha, which had been for sale in the backwoods outside Atlanta for years, but at a ridiculous price. And so through uh, an industry colleague again, Nick Benwell, I ended up flying out there to the back of beyond to see this car. It had been stripped out. It had been used for racing. It hadn't run for years. But the paperwork with it that the guy had accumulated, partly through research from a guy called John De Boer in the States, proved that the original owner was Benito Mussolini. Unbelievable. And the, the original libretto has his signature on it. And we've got copies of that. So we talked to the guy, we talked to John, our client, and we ended up doing a deal which almost made sense financially and brought the car back and then started the research for real. And luckily, my wife's Italian, so she is able to read anything Italian, do the research and so on. And we found photos and indeed a small amount of video, well, film, online of uh, Il Luce in the car. Gosh, that must have been quite a moment. So that was quite exciting. But the interesting thing is that the car went to Eritrea in the mid-30s. And Eritrea was all but name, a sort of an Italian colony, really. And there was a racing scene. So this car clearly got stripped out, found a couple of period photos of the car, pretty much like it is today, not exactly. Doesn't look like a 6C Alpha anymore, but it, it was used for racing out there. And so we've been piecing together the history of the car ever since. And indeed also finding, which is more difficult, finding correct period componentry to put back on the car. It had an earlier engine in it, strangely, rather than later on, a 1500 engine. This is a 1929 car, so it's a third series. We found a correct engine that's probably 30 numbers away from what the original one would have been, correct front axle, various other parts that we're pulling together. And we've just literally last week started the actual work on the car. It's all been about getting our ducks in a row. And you think that that's going to take up to three years to I think so, yeah. That. I mean, it's, it's hard to know. Whenever you do any restoration, you estimate, well, we do, we do estimate of costs and we do estimate of time so we can put milestones in place. But this one's a bit more complex. But I mean, I, I would think to recreate the body alone will take us the best part of a year. Was the history of this car known before you guys started researching it? Yeah, well, yes, this uh, is a very well-known uh, American historian of Italian cars who, in fact, has produced a register called John De Boer. 
and he had done some work on the car and um, summarized it to this guy in Atlanta who's not a car guy the guy we bought it off is more of a motorbike guy and but he bought this car i think uh, in the belief that he could do really well out of it and i think he did do pretty well but uh nobody would touch it really i think because of the from what i understand because of what he was trying to get for the car being in northern i mean and i don't <laughs> like to overpay for things using anybody's money including my own in the end we concluded there are just very very few projects out there like this anymore our chief mechanic paul at work is a, a huge alpisti so he's been researching this and coming up with things himself and and he agreed you know when he saw the car he said you know this is a really rare opportunity because why are we restorers we're restorers above all so that we can put cars back on the road and give their owners joy and enable them to take them out and do what they want with them whether that's the millimilia or a concourse or whatever our job is to bring cars back to life make sure that they are beautiful usable will last for a long time and give their owners joy obviously there are degrees of fame and there's fame and notoriety but in your experience does having a famous owner affect the value of the car positively or can it also do that negatively depending on the owner um i only have limited experience i mean we've got very few uh, high profile owners personally i think that the value of the car is down to first of all whether it's rare whether it's beautiful and then what it did not necessarily what the owner did, but what it did. So obviously if the car's got great race or rally history, or if it's got a known history from you where you can trace everything back, then that's gold dust, the provenance of a car. And I think that will become increasingly important as the market continues to mature, because I think the classic car market is still a bit all over the place, really. And how much do you think the Alpha will be after you've done all your restoration on it? I would hope that it will be worth around a million. Incredible. I would hope. It won't be a matching numbers car. It will have all componentry on it and it will have had to be rebodied. But it will be a genuine 60 Alpha with a known history that's traceable. It won't be the top end, which, as you know, will be yeah. significantly higher than that. But it will be a, a genuine legitimate car. And then we did a Bizzarini 5300 GT Stradale, which is Wayne, my, Wayne Kellen's my partner's, one of his favourite cars. And we, he gave us actually did give us carte blanche to restore that car properly. So we did. It's been shown a couple of times and we actually won an award for that last year. So that was a yeah. great project, actually. You, you say that. I mean, it was at the Concours of Elegance at Hampton Court, which is a, a, about as high profile event as you're going to get in the UK, for sure, probably Europe. And um, mm. I think it won Restoration of the Year at the Historic Motoring Awards. So. It did. It did. And yes. Congratulations. And thank you. Do you Fantastic derive cars. pleasure from restoring cars or is it just a slog? It has to be pleasurable because, frankly, it's a very low margin business. I, I do believe we're the unseen heroes a lot of the time. I'll just take this chip off my shoulder. You know, we are the people who keep the cars on the road. We are bringing cars back to life and so on. But you do it. You have to do it partly for love. I don't believe you can make a lot of money out of restoration or maybe I'm just doing it wrong. So what is your most satisfying restoration to date? The, again, I haven't got one. The Braco Aurelia obviously has to be one of them. It really does. I suppose the car that started the business, which was a, a DB4, because I bought that DB4 and in the end, we then started the business. And I sold the car to uh, an Australian architect and we finished the restoration of that. And that was immensely satisfying. And, and we still look after it. And then we did do a Gullwing, which I just think was because of the nature of that car and it's the beauty of it and so on. That was deeply satisfying to see at the end. And the owner, who is a Pebble Beach judge, apart from anything else, they loved it. And, and that, that gave... Seeing the owner with no, the car... No pressure really then. Satisfaction. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> I don't mind pressure, really. We were talking earlier, and I, I it sort of I noted that you mentioned that two hundred and fifty thousand pounds not being an astonishing amount it's of money if, in the classic car yeah, world. Please at the don't take that. Sounds very <laughs> glib, and I I hope I'm not glib. When we started the business, I thought from the beginning the only way to do this, if we're going to do it properly, which to me means all the things we do in the company, we're going to have to aim high. We're going to have to aim for top customers because in the end it's not about the car it is about the customer it's about having the right customers we knew we had to aim high to be able to build the business the way i wanted to and do things properly and do everything in-house like we do etc that's why it probably sounds a bit glib it's not meant to at all no no i i, I should say that you know but much as i am man of the people and my triumph um, it gets worked on only by me generally because of the financial side of it if these people weren't investing this amount of money in these cars we would be losing these cars and that's incredibly important to me as an enthusiast that to know that they're not only continuing to survive but they're actually being put back to a condition where they'll continue to survive for generations to come absolutely i'm sure jody would agree that you know when you go to, yeah. to goodwood and you see people willing to put their multi-million pound cars out there on the track for the benefit of the audience, also, of course, their own ego, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, they're doing it. And I think that's yeah. just fantastic. I also think that, that it is going to change. And you and I have talked about this, James. And, and the outlaw probably taught us a lot in terms of our own internal research and re-engineering abilities. And I think there'll be more and more cars that if we want to keep them on the road, and it's a classic made in a reasonable amount of numbers, that that car should be personalised and doesn't have to stick to some inaspic originality. And if that's going to keep the cars on the road, then I think there'll be more of it. And certainly, I think, you know, a couple of the 356s we've done, we've tweaked to make them more usable on a daily basis. So we've had so many wonderful success stories. Ever had a disaster? Depends what you mean by disaster. We've had disasters <laughs> where... So we've had cars which have been a financial disaster for us because they've just been... Yeah so difficult to do. I mean, we did a BMW 327, which is a very complex car in its construction. It was just a nightmare. And in our early days, we also did a Riley of some sort, which I remember thinking, oh God. And in the end, it just, frankly, it just cost me to put it right because we've never delivered a car to a customer. That's quite reassuring to know that you have the same naivety as me in my garage thinking how long something's going to take me and how much it's going to cost and how complicated it's going to be. And then as soon as you start the job, finding out it's completely different. So, I mean, most people, we talked about that £250,000 threshold. We're not beating anyone with a stick over that. But most people in the UK probably owning classic cars are tinkering with them themselves or mm. setting about their own restorations. What advice from your years making a very successful business doing this, what advice can you give to the chap in the garage with, for example, an MGA or a Beetle who just wants to restore it themselves. What are the golden rules? Oh, gosh. Nobody told me. I wish I had a script. Uh, I suppose the number one thing, <laughs> number one thing I have to say, which is what we do, is make the car safe. So I don't know whether you're planning to take this Beetle completely to bits or you just want, you've bought it and you want to make sure you can go out and drive it. First of all, fix the brakes completely. Just make sure that this car will stop. The second thing is make sure your wiring is safe because in the end, the two things that will usually stop a car from working and break you down on the side of the road are fuel system or electrics. So you've got to get those things right. The rest of it really is what you want to do with the car. If you're going to do a complete home restoration, I would still say that make sure that the products you use 
uh, and the processes you use are going to make it last. There are a lot of cars often done by restorers that will be done down to a price the and they cheap. will look shiny and wonderful, but they're not going to look like that in two years' time. Mm. Yeah. Is it possible to own a lovely car, use it, and keep it lovely? Because this is the problem I've always had. Depends how bad a driver you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, well, well, yeah. <laughs> um, that revealed. It's surprising how often people say to me, either at the beginning of it, well, I don't want it concourse, which, by the way, is a vastly overused word, because, you know, I want to go out and drive it. My simple philosophy that if you're going to redo your car, particularly if you're going to do a complete restoration on the car, and all this stuff about, oh, we've got to keep the patina. If you're going to redo the car, you have to do it properly, within your means. And therefore, once you've done it, you've started a new chapter for the car. It's a car. Go out and drive it and enjoy it and love it. And if you get stone chips on it, fill them in carefully. Maintain it properly. You know, Make sure that you've got all the underbody protection on it and that you keep everything properly lubricated. Just look after it. And remember, an old car is an old car. The engineering and so on was different, and they required more maintenance in the day. Connect to your car by doing that. Connect to your car by driving it and by looking after it. The reason that I enjoyed so much that Healy restoration all those years ago was because I got to see every single thing that was done to that car. Mm. Therefore, when I drive it today, I know what was done. And that's a great feeling. Very wise words. And I think that's it's a lovely thing when you spend so much time and effort on something that you actually get out and drive it. Yeah, um, exactly. Right. So in this podcast series, we're running a special theme called One Piece at a Time. And we're asking our guests to select one prize possession to bring to the podcast. At the end of the series, we'll have a beautiful collection so it could be a bit of a car, a photograph, an artefact, or a special memory. So, Simon, we were really hoping <laughs> that you would physically be able to bring your piece in, but obviously we're working remotely. So are you able to describe that special thing? I hope I haven't stolen my own thunder because it is actually the A-post, the very rotten A-post of that Healy 100 that was restored in 1990-91. Which was given to me by the two guys who restored it in a disused fire station in a place called Malta, Illinois, and they mounted it on a on a walnut plaque and gave me the car back. And it says underneath it, you know, this is the A post of this car. It took us over two thousand hours to restore. It hangs on my office wall. The reason it's important is because I've still got the car, and it really is what turned me onto whether foolishly or wisely this world of restoration of old cars. Amazing. Will you tweet us the picture of it? I and will. then we can post it. Well, Simon, you've been an absolute superstar and thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. And I hope that we'll get a chance to meet in person. Oh, I hope so. Kind of like when this is all calmed down and in slightly normal times. Yes, indeed. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And please don't forget to send your picture. And we'd also love for you guys to share your own one piece at a time pictures on Instagram or Facebook, or you can send it on email. As with Simon's example, it can be a bit of a car, a photograph, an artifact that holds a special memory. And James, can you give those addresses? Um, yeah, it's fairly straightforward. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb Collector Car, that's C-H-U-B-B -B, Collector Car, or for the email, classiccars at chubb.com.
chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. Thank you so much, James. And thank you for listening to this first podcast in the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb, who I know share our passion for these wonderful cars too. Wherever you're listening from around the world, we wish you well and we send all of our love. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. Don't forget to email us your stories on the pieces of your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. He's James Elliott. Until next time. Bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.